Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. Before we begin, I want to just take a, an opportunity to thank my colleague, Professor Jonathan Walton, who is the Pusey Minister of the Memorial Church, and all his staff for their gracious hospitality in this beautiful venue that we're in uh, today. So we appreciate uh, your hospitality. Thank you. So my name is David Hempton, and as Dean of the Harvard Divinity School, it's my distinct honor and great privilege to welcome you, Your Holiness, um, 17th Karmapa to Harvard University to speak about a topic that's very near and dear to all our hearts and minds, caring for life on earth in the 21st century. Your Holiness, we are deeply honored by your presence with us today, and to mark this historical and special visit, I have the privilege of presenting a welcoming gift to you, a memorial bowl that is engraved with our Harvard Divinity School seal, and the words presented to His Holiness, the 17th Karmapa, with the highest appreciation on the occasion of his historic visit to the Harvard Divinity School, Cambridge, Massachusetts, March 26, 2015. So this is my pleasant responsibility. So it's my pleasure to welcome all of you, members of the entourage of His Holiness, honored lamas, faculty, students, and staff at Harvard, as well as our friends and guests from near and far, who are both physically present with us here at the Memorial Church, and, and also those joining us via our live web stream. A very warm welcome to everyone. Your Holiness, as you know, the Harvard Divinity School has had a long-standing, cordial, and friendly relation with important representatives of Tibetan Buddhism. In 1976, we welcomed His Holiness the 16th Karmapa to HDS following an invitation from our Hollis professor, Harvey Cox. And on April 30th, 2009, we had the honor of hosting your mentor and teacher, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, here in this very church, on exactly the same spot we are sitting right now. Six, um, six years ago, His Holiness the Dalai Lama spoke about educating the heart was the topic. And you also have addressed this in your inspiring and beautiful book, The Heart is Noble, Changing the World from the Inside Out. And I really recommend you get this book and read it. It's a wonderful read. It seems a natural continuation of this dialogue, therefore, to direct our views now to the future and to the 21st century, and we're excited to hear your thoughts on this vital topic in just a few moments. First, please allow me to say just a few words about Harvard Divinity School's important connections with Buddhism. As many of you know, HDS has had a thriving Buddhist ministry program since 2011. This program is an important part of our mission to educate leaders who are conversant in world religions, as well as ministers who can lead spiritual communities and provide guidance as religious professionals appropriate to modern global conditions. With the support of a generous gift from the Robert H. N. Ho Family Foundation, Harvard Divinity School has thus been able to expand its offerings in ministerial training to include the study of Buddhist ministry. Along with our students, the driving force behind many of these exciting developments has been my friend and colleague, Professor Janet Gyatso, the Hershey Professor of Buddhist Studies and Associate Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs at Harvard Divinity School. We also have the honor of welcoming among our guests this afternoon the generous donor behind Professor Gyatso's chair, Mr. Barry Hershey. So a special welcome to him. Hmm. Professor Gatso and her team in academic affairs have put together today's event, and our sincere thanks go to all of you for um, putting this together so well. So it's now my great pleasure to welcome Professor Gatso, herself an internationally acclaimed scholar of Tibetan Buddhism, and the author recently of a large and very important book on the history of medicine in early modern uh, Tibet, to introduce our honored guest, 
So, Janet, please. Thank you. Thank you very much, and good afternoon, everyone. It's an amazing honor for me to be able to introduce the great hero, His Holiness the 17th Karmapa, Ugin Tsinle Dorje, to you this afternoon. I myself have never met him before until today, but of course I've heard so much about him, and it's really a great thrill and honor to finally meet him in person. Our speaker this afternoon is the 17th in a line of tukus, or officially recognized reincarnating lamas. Each in that line were recognized as young boys by disciples of the prior deceased Karmapa on the basis of special signs, indications, and instructional letters. The first Karmapa, Dusam Kimba, was born in 1193. He is probably the first Tibetan master to produce a recognized incarnation after his own death. This reincarnation, or recognized Tuku, was the second Karmapa, Karmapakshi, who was an amazing meditator and master who spent years as a hermit. He later visited Kublai Khan, and he also met Marco Polo. The third Karmapa, Rangjun Dorje, was a brilliant theorist. He wrote about the spiritual capacities and pathways in the human body. And his magnum opus, called Sapno Nangdun, or in English, The Profound Inner Meaning, has also been very important for my work as a scholar. The fifth Karmapa was the teacher of the Ming Emperor Chengzu, who offered to send troops to place all of Tibet under the Karmapa's rule, which the Karmapa declined. Mikyo Dorje, born 1507, wrote copiously on Buddhist phenomenology and Buddhist deconstructive metaphysics. He was also invited to visit the Chinese court, but he declined. The 11th Karmapa, Trin Dorje, was a great and original painter and sculptor. He creatively expanded upon old art styles from both India and China. The 16th Karmapa, Rangchung Ripa Dorje, was born in the 20th century and escaped Tibet in 1959, taking many of the Karmapa lineage's sacred treasures and relics with him. He had already composed poetry back in the 40s, foretelling Buddhism's imminent demise inside Tibet, and he realized that an important site for the future of his traditions might be the West. He went to meet Pope Paul and later set up many Buddhist centers in Europe and the United States. He died in Illinois in 1981. It is said that he was able to communicate with animals. Once, while teaching in Europe, a large raven tapped on the window where His Holiness was speaking. The bird then flew into the room and directly over to His Holiness, who then instructed two people to go to a barn a few miles down the road where they would find two birds, trapped and starving. They went, and birds were discovered there, and they rescued them. The 16th Karmapa was actually famous for having a special fondness for birds, and he considered a visit to the local pet shop in every city in the world an essential part of his itinerary. No doubt, he was murmuring quiet mantras and blessings to the birds when he met them. The current Karmapa is Ugyantinle Dorje, the 17th Karmapa, in whose presence we are today. He is no less exceptional than any of his exceptional predecessors, or should I say, his previous lives. And by the way, I would advise you to look um, on Google. You can search the 16th Karmapa, and you'll see a certain resemblance, uh, at least in my opinion, <laughs> a certain glow. It's very similar. Uh, anyway, I'm here to tell you that the Tugu system in Tibet is alive and well. The master and teacher before us is obvious evidence of it. Ugyen Tinle Dorje was born into a nomad family in the Latok region of eastern Tibet in 1985. He became a monk at the age of four, and then at the age of seven, he was recognized as the 17th Karmapa by a team of Karmakagyu lamas who were traveling around Tibet on a search team, carrying with them the prediction letter written by the 16th before he died. The signs matched, and the boy was installed at the old monastery Tsurpu in north-central Tibet, where he arrived from the east on horseback with high pomp and procession. This was in 1992. He began to be trained there to be the head of the Karmakagyu school and to take up the position that his former life had occupied. 
So this is the Tuku system of Tibet. A special child is formed by a group of masters and monks to become a teacher of wisdom and compassion, a visionary to lead his people. And this is especially important in these times of great duress for his people. And at the age of 14, I think maybe a thunderbolt hit him, I don't know, but he thought, he realized that he needed to be outside the strict surveillance of the Chinese authorities and instead in the ambiance of His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama and the many other high teachers who were in exile in the Indian Himalayas. He really needed to receive the necessary teachings for his education. So plans were made carefully, and one night he climbed out of an upstairs window in his monastery residence and accompanied only by his trusted head steward, who by the way is with us today, and a few guides, he made his way across the Himalayas by car, foot, horseback, helicopter, train, and taxi to Dharamsala, India, where he showed up, none the worse for the wear, uh, at the door of the Dalai Lama uh, one week later. I remember well that day, January... January 5, 2000, when the headline hit the world press. I remember well gazing at his face in the newspaper the next day. I felt, even from that distance, the bold and intelligent and amazingly honest energy of this young man from eastern Tibet. It was also thrilling that the Dalai Lama, the exile leader of the Tibetan people, along with the many other great lamas of Tibetan Buddhism, were reunited with another member of the really upper, upper echelon of Tibetan Buddhist authority, the Karmapas. It was all purely a result of vision and determination that the right thing should happen. And so it did. His Holiness the 17th Karmapa did indeed continue to study in detail in India, receiving a variable treasure trove of teachings, he has also been pursuing concerns in the larger world far beyond his study of Tibetan philosophy and religious practice. He's particularly interested in the environment, in gender issues, social justice. And much like his predecessor, the compassionate care of animals is extremely important to him, and he's living as a vegetarian for the last eight years. He is also a playwright and a director. He, he wrote and produced a six-play act on the life of Milarepo, uh, combining elements of traditional Tibetan opera and modern theater, and I really wish I could see that. I think it might be available on YouTube. Among, uh, among other amazing things, he has recently announced in a very historically important act that he will convene a platform to begin ordaining women as Tibetan bhikshunis in the Mullar tradition. And this has huge, huge significance for global Buddhism today. And he's also creating green monasteries all across the Himalayan region. The Divinity School re requested that His Holiness would speak to us about some of his ideas and hopes and visions for the future, his ethical concerns about the future of life on planet Earth in the 21st century today. Uh, let me just close by saying, first of all, that His Holiness is accompanied on this tour by his elder sister, Jetsamang Mujuk Belzum, and by several senior scholars, nuns, and monks in his entourage. It is really my great honor to welcome him and his entourage to Harvard, to Harvard Divinity School and the Memorial Church. Jack Harmaba Keno, Um, <clears throat> 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 
first. I'd like to greet uh, everyone here uh, at uh, my first visit to Harvard University and Harvard Divinity School. I want to greet all of you, uh, professors, aspiring scholars, students, and everyone who's here. I can actually speak some English. Um, I feel that I speak it somewhat poorly. I certainly don't think my English is up to Harvard standards. <laughs> so therefore, I brought a translator. The wonderful translator, I think. Um, I did plastic surgery. <laughs> that looks like a little bit. <laughs> that is kind of junk. Young girl, Delia, you want to take our shots. And then, I'm going to sing you as a peggy. I'm going to sing you as a peggy. I'm going to sing as Professor Jomso mentioned, uh, the 16th Jawan Kamapa uh, came to the United States as one of the first uh, Tibetan Buddhist masters to bring the Tibetan Buddhist teachings to Western countries, and during that time did indeed, as she said, visit Harvard University. She remarked that my face resembles his, perhaps I've had plastic surgery in order to make it so. And then he said, that's a kind of joke. But in any case, um, whether I resemble my predecessor or not, I'm very, very glad to be back here. And also in consideration of the, uh, that I'm following on a pr previous visit by His Holiness the Dalai Lama to this very church. Kind <laughs> I've had a busy day, actually a little bit too busy, especially when you consider that the, uh, my main thing today was to come here and address all of you uh, this talk. But nevertheless, I will do my best to address the topic you've presented how to care for life, living things, on Earth, this planet, in the 21st century. Today, I'm going to talk about 
To start with, the real essence of the Buddha's teachings is interdependence, the view that everything is interdependent. In a, the interdependence of the Philosophical, but I think it's extremely important that we not leave the doctrine or idea of interdependence as a mere philosophical idea, but that we actually ask ourselves the question, how can I live according to interdependence? How can I apply interdependence in my life? including my emotional life. During this session, social media and information errors are setting the group so you are just the knowledge and also setting the thing you get to see at the end and also building with the technology then in body and all the young we say to the number seven we can all surely observe that in this 21st century, through social media and other technologies, in this era of information, as we call it, in our mutual interdependence is even more obvious than ever before. information more information we get, information However, information alone is not enough. Well, from one point of view, we might say that the more information we have, the clearer our situation becomes. Sometimes we have so much information that it's too much and it actually obscures us and prevents us from understanding our situation. So interdependence is not just about the sharing of information or an understanding we might arrive at in our brains, in our heads. It is about the sharing the feelings in our hearts and about our real experience. Springtime man, don't ask the spring way. Hello. Tonga? Autumn. 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 I thought he's asleep. Autumn way. Larry? Tatanga Chica Karakibamino. Ada Payulia. And it was a drawing in town. 
ตาเนี่ยตาจิเซมเนจิเจมอมเมยเบจิมซวยบาเราจิเนี่ยงซะบาเราจิตาเนี่ยกบจิเซดิจินเดเซอะมาเนี่ยซัมเจดิเซซะ
他的就是什么东西就是什么东西就是什么东西就是什么东西就是什么东西就是什么东西就是什么东西就是什么东西就是什么东西就是什么东西就是什么东西就是什么东西就是什么东西就是什么东西就是什么东西就是什么东西就是
रश्मि जी ग्रोन आप समर में खादा लंसर ये अंजुस्तान है आज छोटी ने कर कश्मीर जी यूनिवर्सल रोस और ना छोटी ने तंग आज केयरफुल रुचाच दा यहाँ कन कश्मीर जी जंगो देवन रुचाच तक देश वे ना संबंधिये रुचाच ना देश जी तो अंदा कंदा निजी मांगो जी तो तंग आज जवाहरलाल मिंदो याना आज जवाहरलाल मिंदो छेसा आल चुदो में संसार रुचि याना आओ तंग ये चुदो As we grow up, we are subjected to various changes in our environments and circumstances. And I think that these can cause our innate compassion to become obscured. It's almost as though we're born with the compassion button switched on and it gets switched off. Because as adults, now we need to think about it. It doesn't come as easily to us. And when we think about the suffering of another, and the possibility of taking responsibility for helping them, we always think, well, would doing so harm me or help me? How would it affect my life? In one way, this is because we are, as we like to say, grown up. We're educated, and we're therefore careful, even clever, maybe strategic. And so we're clever enough to think, well, this doesn't involve me. I don't feel connected to that. And also to worry about the risk that we might be posing to ourselves by uh, feeling compassion uh, for others. And I think all of this tends to obscure or repress our innate uh, love and compassion. It's not to think of to generate something, to change. The Hinduists have that encouragement. That is, you need to share your research with me. My mother, you need to change your life. Volunteerism, dedication, some sort of awesome reward. Can't you? Did you share with me? And she needs to change your life. Compassion, after all, is not a thought. It is a feeling. And it's not something that we can really inculcate or even encourage particularly. Compassion is something that each of us has to volunteer through our natural courage and benevolence. And that benevolence is really the root of compassion. The Hinduistane, Azuti, Tangishivan Singhi, Azu, Tinjung Tawasan and Dandu, and the Tawachi woman, Takanda, Tinjung in Tansade, Mizina Loliang Azu, the Musu Azu, Yamsun Yoyedips, Takanda, Chigitilian, Javachadi, Evici, Simsi Chigiti, Shinan Nuju. Nuju,平均在我家里也不知道。当然，新机，嗯，南极巨，新疆这个的呢，平均几个几人在我家里也不知道。但当然，这，我做一个，看了一下那边的，读了一下那边的，他那是五个，九个中间一名呢，平均几
As I said, interdependence, while it is a, a concept or an idea, must be more than an idea or a look or view. It has to be something that we experience. We need to experience and recognize the interdependence of this environment and all of the beings who inhabit it, and the interdependence among beings between any one being and all others. The food we eat, the clothes we wear, the air we breathe is all, has all arisen through the actions of other beings. We cannot survive independently. We cannot eat, wear clothes, or breathe independently. The more, we, the more keenly we feel this, the more we will feel that the welfare or well-being of other beings, their happiness and suffering, is very much part of our own. And that will help us begin to take responsibility for the welfare of other beings. But it's not enough simply to begin or set about taking such responsibility. We have to actually feel within us the type of compassion that is genuinely courageous. Um, and で、<laughs> ま、もちろん、トンコよ。だ、たんぎでね。ラバーとペナ。じ、カジョ、トンゲル。やげじんがトンゲルじんなのら、あれ、しゃでけど、さまのマーケットなんで、ニョガンドやる、パッケージ、
When I arrived in India in the year 2000, and I met several American friends who would say, well, when you come to the United States, we'll offer you barbecue. We have this amazing way to cook meat in our country called barbecue. And you... Well, by the time I got here, the first time in 2008, I'd already uh, committed to never eating meat again. Uh, and so it was too late. So I never actually got to taste barbecue. And the, but I would be driven along highways, and I'd see Texas barbecue on the side of the road. And it would make me salivate, but it's too late. Nowadays, while from one point of view we're made extremely comfortable by the way we do things, the way we do things also conceals a great deal from our sight, such as the process that culminates in the meat we eat. And so we lose an awareness of our connection to things. And that we have to therefore deepen our awareness of our interdependence. <laughs> Disaster, somewhere, the disaster, disaster, in a deep disaster, the Karasana Chicksana, Nazo, the Yamdo, Yedevsi, Nazo Hamaoji, Apatisat, Mazuki, Simlia, Nyezi, Yedevsi. They did disaster, Shans of Sadi. They turned the negative with the zoo, to avoid Setuare, in a disaster, Susuki, Simlia Vinza, and they avoid Chadi, comes to the other. Says the Dijuzen and Tame. え、カシワだ。チャンスン。で、あ、ちょ、運動だね、ま、さな、ちゃんと。いや、かしき、リスポンシビリティ、インディペンデント、リスポンシビリティ、スレディ、ヘビーバーディンドブ、ね、ま、
about uh, having compassion regarding the many disasters that occur in this world, usually we think of things such as uh, horrific epidemics, wars, violence, starvation, and so on. But there is one source of disaster that we often uh, fail to recognize, which is a lack of love. A lack of love can cause people to have no help when they need help, and no friend when they need a friend. So in a sense, the most dangerous thing in the world is apathy. We think of weapons, violence, warfare, disease as terrible dangers, and indeed they are. But we can take measures to avoid them. But once our apathy takes hold of us, we can no longer avoid it. So I urge you to feel a love that is courageous. Not courageous in the sense of the grudging undertaking of a heavy burden in feeling responsible for the welfare of others, but the joyous acknowledgement of your interdependence with each, with every other living being, and with this environment itself. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.